This is episode number 46, and we're returning to Kamigawa because it's now a flashback draft format. Um, so uh, we can do human drafts in Kamigawa yet again. So uh, if you're bored with the other formats, or if you just love Kamigawa so greatly, you can come back to it. But I also know that not every one of you has played Kamigawa, so we're going to get a refresher. And maybe some of you forgot already what this is all about. So uh, we're going to look at some data from the first run of the format. Uh, look at what the archetypes do and what the archetypes don't do, even though they promise to. And I also wanted to look specifically on the comparison of the uh, first run and flashback, because we have some early data um, on that, and to see how different is the flashback uh, run from the original run, what are the things to watch, and what are the things you can do, and what are the things you cannot do. And maybe some, you know, like small tips and tricks uh, uh, segment when I will talk about some archetypes uh, and what are the key points of them apart from the you know, usual card win ratios. But before we go into all this, a word from the sponsor. Yes, yes, I do have a sponsor. It's mtgazone.com. And um, well, they have lots of magic stuff. I mean, apart from limited content, by the way, my article based on last week's seminar should be hitting the uh, website, uh, well, hopefully within the next couple of days. Uh, and I think that this is going to be an uh, article you want to bookmark because it has lots of graphs that might be useful for other formats where you can basically try to estimate what are the odds of a card wheeling uh, based on the ALSA metric. But it's not only limited there. Like today, um, before the stream, I, I, I made my presentation way too early. I mean, like I had half an hour spare. Um, so I used this half an hour to uh, basically craft all the Explorer metagame because I'm playing a bit more Pioneer in my FNM uh, right now. So uh, I thought I'll practice to the closest thing that we have to Pioneer on Arena. And that is, um, and that is basically Explorer. So uh, I went on the MTGA zone. I opened the article that showed the metagame for the format. I crafted 20 most uh, played decks in the format because I'm a limited player and I can do that kind of stuff. And now I have a bunch of decks from Explorer, and I'm going to uh, play around with them. And some of them look really fun. So yeah, the Jordan, I don't know. I don't know what you should play in your Pioneer RCQ. Uh, but I mean, this is like completely not related to my sponsorship of MTG Arena um, Zone. Um, I think Mason Clark did a tier list, if I'm not mistaken, on Twitter. Uh, and they had, I think, Azorius Control and Rakdos Sacrifice in there, or Rakdos Midrange, I think. Um, but yeah, I also saw Mono Green being, uh, being advertised as good. I play Spirits, but I don't know if it's a good deck. I just like to play that type of game. I think that you would also enjoy playing Mono Blue Spirits, the Jordan. It also probably depends on the metagame and you. But we are not here to talk about Constructed, are we? I mean, I maybe once will make an episode um, on how playing constructed can improve your limited um, gameplay, because I think that it's important to, well, at least from time to time, play constructed. And I'm not playing a lot of constructed. I'm playing just enough to get to platinum each season, and then I stop probably. But I play some just to get keep myself 
uh, open to different ways of playing, to more coherent decks, and to uh, uh, well, the art of mulliganing, for example, which is much better to learn from um, from constructed because in limited you just probably should never mulligan. But anyway. If you are playing in RCQs, then definitely your pioneer section uh, from uh, MTGA zone will be useful for you. Um, Chuck Noblox, uh, the reason to get to Platinum specifically is that I get one booster extra and it's relatively easy to get to um, uh, Platinum. I sometimes, if I really feel like I need to up my uh, gameplay, I will uh, grind to Diamond. That's it. I think that Platinum is the place where you get all the rewards and then from um, going further than Platinum, you only get extra uh, extra pack per level, so uh, yeah, yeah, that's why I do it. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe I just do it because it's maybe there's no good reason for doing it. Well, okay. but let's 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 go back to limited. We all are limited grinders here, and if you're not, then you should be. And uh, I'm going to make a case for that. Okay, so my preamble is: flashback drafts are two-speed formats, and by two-speed formats, I don't mean the speed of play. I mean two speeds of players. Uh, so basically. You will see people that love the format coming back. I'm pretty sure that Jordan is going to jam a lot of um, uh, Kamigawa drafts uh, uh, because he liked the format. But there is also a group of players that didn't have a chance of playing uh, that particular set. And I think maybe with Kamigawa, it's not going to be a large portion because it's been, it's been relatively recent. But, um, but uh, there will be some newer players that want to go back, maybe some players that want to expand their collection and understand that drafting is the easiest way to uh, expand your collection while also becoming better at magic in general. Um, so you will have the mixture of players on the pods, some of them that have a deep, deep knowledge of the format and some of them that are still learning. And that creates a strange uh, conundrum uh, uh, for, especially for those newer players that are basically pitted against people that understand the fully evolved format while they are still at the stage of the discovery. And this is something that to some extent does exist in first run of the format because some people are more invested and they 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 know things a couple of days before the rest will figure that out. Uh, but here the disproportions are much bigger. And um, I think that uh, this can potentially generate value for the deeper invested players because you will have at least a small portion of your games against people that don't know what's going and you're going to get free wins, which means that those flashback drafts can be more valuable than any other draft, uh, premier draft format in um, on Arena for, for super invested players in terms of their win rates. I think you should have a decent win rate when you play the uh, flashback draft format when you, um, when you were having good results in the first round. So um, that's something to uh, keep in mind when, you're, uh, when all those flashback formats are returning. If you loved Streets of Nikafena, I think that next week that's coming back as well. So uh, you have a chance. But this weekend we're playing Kamikawa. And because of that, I'm going to talk about Kamikawa to some extent. Okay. So the data summary, uh, I looked at the 17lens.com data. I didn't even dive into the uh, deep, deep, deep data. I just took stuff from the website. So uh, basically all the analysis that I did, you could easily do at home if you if you had that kind of feeling. But um, it's basically 1.1 million games uh, of the first run. Uh, and there is probably like you know, 5, 20, 20,000 maybe games in the, uh, in, the, in the rerun. So the sample sizes are widely different um, also the data from um, 17 lens does contain all the early season data 
so it has a mixed um, mixed level of 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 of, um, of card presence, including the early format when we're still discovering what uh, Kamigawa is all about. Um, okay, so first of all, the format stats just to give you the nice um, overview of how Kamigawa looked like in the first uh, first run of it. Uh, we basically can sort of see that there is not a big difference between the the best and the and the poorest uh, archetype. So we have the Demir at fifty eight percent and Boros at fifty three percent. That's not as a big um, difference as we have, for example, now in um, at the, uh, Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate, because there I think the difference between top archetype and the bottom archetype is something like eleven percentage points. So uh, don't jump out of side of the queue, small Sam. We're going to talk about Monoret. Don't worry. Okay, again. Um, so uh, basically, there's four archetypes that are sort of best, and we're talking about uh, Demir, so blue black, Rakdos, black red, uh, Golgari, black green, and Silesnia, green white. And um, these archetypes are doing different things at different speeds, so it's interesting to see that different strategies can be uh, successful in um, Kamigawa. Then we have a pack of uh, four other archetypes that are sort of just a tier below, I would say. And we have Simic, the um, green-blue, uh, Orzov, the white-black, uh, Azorius, uh, white-blue, is it blue-red. And then we have two archetypes that are poorer than the rest, and that's Gruul and Boros, so red-green and red-white. It's, it's very weird for, um, for the recent set that the Naya colors are actually doing quite poorly because uh, very frequently they do quite well. Well, at least Boros and Selesnya do. Gruul uh, has been struggling and limited for some time already, and I think that uh, that's something for the wizards to maybe look into uh, during their set design process, that why can't they make a decent Gruul deck? Um, so that's the uh, win rates from the first run. Uh, we're going to compare them with the uh, second run soon. But before we do that, and by soon I mean Still, still some slides in between. But before we do that, we're going to look at each color combination and look at it from the uh, perspective of the first run. And I'm going to do two slides for each. Oh, well, I didn't change Terrace Beyond Death because why would I? So uh, just ignore it. It's not Terrace Beyond Death, it's Neo. Um, we're going to look at the signpost uncommon, uh, top uncommon, my pick of uncommon. Uh, and usually my pick is a card that either was niche or was um, um, particularly important for uh, a given archetype, in my opinion. Um, so something that you should either have good access to or that you should definitely be focusing on because even though it's not the top card in the format, it was crucial in terms of how the decks were functioning that uh, contained it. In terms of Boros, as I said, the, the weakest archetype in the format the signpost uncommon uh, had a 52.8% win rate. That's below the average for that uh, archetype for the 17-month users, which tells you basically that a card was not good. B, probably the theme of that um, archetype was not working as well as it should. Now, the theme for white-red was allegedly uh, attacking alone with a samurai or a warrior, and it just didn't come together. There was just... Not enough on the common level, I think. There's a couple of cards that slight tweaks would have maybe made it uh, better. Like, I especially was, I'm thinking about the 2-mana two 2-1 two that uh, had 
when a samurai or warrior attacks alone and gets plus one, plus one uh, until end of turn. And I think that the problem with this card is that it was a 2-1. If it was a 2-2, that archetype would have been way stronger because playing a 2-2 uh, uh, on turn two and attacking with it as a 3-3 is a very powerful thing. Playing a 2-1 on turn two and attacking with a 3-2, not as powerful because that's easily blocked and, um, and the whole uh, strategy just collapses around it. The best card in the archetype was Twin Shirt Sniper. And that was a best uncommon in many red color decks, basically. It's a very solid card. You know, it's 2-3 um, with the secret reach. It hopefully kills something uh, on ETB because it will deal two damage to any target. And if not, then it can uh, go face. You can also channel it so you can basically discard it to cast it to mana shock. Um, card is great. Um, uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily pick it to play white-red, but I would definitely pick it and try to maybe play mono-red, which is a much better strategy. Um, uh, where is it? Uh, Gomlet X, thank you very much for the raid. Um, uh, I noticed that the number of viewers uh, has changed in a way that I normally don't observe. That means probably someone raided. Thank you very much for that raid. We just started, so you're uh, actually getting the full value of the seminar here. The card that I picked myself was Kumano Faces Kakazan because that card was underdrafted in the first run and it was great. It was a card that when you saw it played on turn one, you against you, you already started thinking, oh dear, that's not going to be an easy game. Uh, I'm already so far behind. And very often, um, as you can see from the high win rate and that win rate is even even much higher when it's in the open and open um, opening hand. Um, uh, it's it's just great. So basically, it's a saga, and we're going to look at sagas a lot. So if for those that didn't play uh, Kamigawa sagas, are those uh, special permanents that when they enter the battlefield, the first chapter is being read, and then at the beginning of your main phase, uh, it progresses by a chapter a turn. And here, the first chapter is just like pink for one. Um, second chapter is when you cast your next creature spell uh, this turn, that creature enters the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it. So I told you about this two one samurai. If you played Kumano Faces Kakazan uh, on turn one and you played this city 2-1 uh, Samurai on turn two, it enters the battlefield as a 3-2 and then it attacks as a 4-3. And that is a much, much, much more uh, dangerous situation than just the 2-1. So uh, uh, you were even being able to play the sort of aggressive build of the Samurai deck. But even without it, if you wanted to play some kind of a um, proactive uh, red-white deck, you could just easily play with Kumano faces Kakazan. The problem is that the card is maybe not amazing in the late game when you draw it and you're out of uh, cards in your hand because you play it and you have to hope that you're going to draw a creature or you have to wait with playing it uh, until you have a creature to play next turn, but then you have to stop playing creatures. It just becomes very awkward. And at the chapter three, actually, it switches into a 2-2 creature uh, with haste. So um, you play turn one. Turn two, uh, it activates to make your creature bigger. And turn three, it becomes a hasty creature, so you uh, continue your uh, aggressive attacks. Uh, you can easily do that. Also, it has uh, ability to exile everything that uh, goes into the graveyard. All the creatures that of the opponent die go to uh, exile instead, which is a useful ability because there is recursion in this uh, format, and especially in green. Um, so in terms of white-red commons, um, the top card was Imperial Oath, and that's going to be the case of many white decks. Imperial Oath was, first of all, atrociously underdrafted in the first round of this format. 
Um, so uh, it went pretty late because people didn't know how powerful it is. Uh, now I can give you a spoiler, it changed uh, in the flashback. It, it's picked much higher now. So you can't reliably count on getting the oaths. Also, uh, you have to prioritize them higher. Imperial Oath is a um, six mana sorcery, create three two two white samurai creatures tokens with vigilance and you scry three. Now, to quote Codicles, Scry 3 is very different from Scry 1, uh, and in, in a way that Scry 1 very often does nothing, uh, Scry 3 rarely does nothing, um, which means if you can select two of the cards from the top that you don't want, that's probably an equivalent of drawing a card in the game. Uh, if you can pick the only one card that you're interested in uh, with and, and, and remove the cards that you are not interested with, that's a big deal. Also, the 322 White Samurais is a force to be reckoned with. Uh, they are very good at stabilizing the game because it's hard to kill all of them at the same time. Um, they also attack very well because they all have vigilance, so they can attack without you having to commit to, um, uh, to swing back from the opponent. So um, uh, it does just so many things. And it's an excellent top end of any kind of controlish deck. And I think that this is part of um, what White Red wants to be doing. It wants to have maybe relatively fast early starts that can be used both offensively or defensively, but then it wants to stabilize and just cast Oath, 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 and then finish the game. And I think that this was the best uh, way of playing the White Red decks in this format, sort of uh, controlling, making sure that you don't miss your land drops, making sure that you play um, um, this kind of grindy, uh, attrition game. You have some good red removal, you have some decent uh, white card that will let you do the attrition. And I think that the, um, um, yeah, basically um, Imperial Oath was fitting exactly into that kind of uh, strategy. Now, for every common, I will give you the top saga. And I think that apart from the failure of the samurai mechanic, the weakness of white and red sagas at common level was the problem that this color combination had. Now here, the best uh, saga at common was uh, Era of Enlightenment. Uh, that's a two mana and first chapter is cry, then you gain two life and then you exile it and you return it in, as a two two first striker. And the game in hand win rate of that is only 51.7%, which is markedly lower than uh, Imperial Oath. It's, uh, well, it's basically at the level of, it's below the level of the signpost, which I told you was below the average level of the deck, which means there is no good common saga for that archetype. And I think that Sagas giving so much value in this format, uh, they were so important that not having them, uh, not having any that are good, um, was a significant problem for a color combination. And, and, and that's why white red struggle. Um, in terms of my pick, I think that uh, I selected Iron Hoof Boar, the six mana five four trample haste. And that also has a channel, discard it and give target creature plus three plus one and trample until end of turn. I selected it mainly because it was going late and I think it still does go relatively late. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, game and hand win rate was on par for the, for the, for the color combination. I think that Iron Hoof Boar is also like a decent speculative pick if you want to go into this sort of artifact mono red decks, so that's fine. Um, and that's why I selected it. But generally, I wouldn't advise you to, uh, to play, um, to play white, red and Kamigawa unless you, unless you have like really strong incentives. Zach asks, is there any explanation why 17 lands players have a lower win rate with um, Kamigawa than say, um, uh, um, Alchemy Horizons Baldur's Gate? I think that there is generally, there is generally a, 
trend that formats that are a bit more even, uh, 17 lens players have a slightly lower win rate. And I think that this might be related to the fact that um, in more even formats, the knowledge of uh, pick orders gives you a slightly lower advantage um, over the rest of the field than in formats that are lopsided. Because if you know the lopsided um, formats and if you know what side of being lopsided should you be on, uh, you can draft with preferences. And I think 17 lens is a perfect tool for um, giving you that ability to draft with preferences. While the more even formats, uh, when there is no clear best archetype, I think that these are the formats when there's a slightly bigger benefit of drafting the hard way. And in drafting the hard way, <clears throat> you can know good cards, but you uh, basically don't know uh, any clear preference. And if you try to draft with preferences in formats that are more even, you might lose out and uh, some of those win percentage go away because it's better to stay open in those formats rather than... Yes, um, uh, even meaning more even win rates between archetypes. And, and as we saw a couple of slides before, there is only like five percentage points difference between the top archetype and, uh, and the weakest one. And actually, you know, like most archetypes are within two percentage points from each other. Uh, so uh, quite close, um, which means you're better off figuring out what's open than, uh, than drafting with preferences and, you know, trying to soft force something. Okay. Um, oh God, I hate that I didn't change the name of the set. I copied the slides from the Terrors Beyond Death presentation. And guess what? I changed everything except for the bloody name of the set. Anyway, um, Red Green, according to Wizards, it was supposed to be a, a modified uh, archetype. And modified, it means creatures with counters or with auras are modified. And um, that was mainly it. Um, therefore, the Signpost Uncommon was an enchantment invigorating hot spring. Uh, it enters the battlefield with four plus one plus one counters on it. Modified creatures you control have haste. Remove a plus one plus one counter from the enchantment and put it on target creature. You can only activate it as a sorcery and only once each turn. So you can imagine you're playing it at some stage, then you play a creature, you put a plus one plus one counter on it, give it haste, it can swing. Uh, on paper, it, it was a good card, but um, actually its numbers are quite disappointing. Uh, it's 53% win rate. That's roughly on the par uh, for the deck. Um, it, those, those enchantments, they've been tried multiple times in uh, last four months. I think that there was one in Guilds of Ravnica that had something similar to do. And they aren't really that well positioned to be played. It's just like you play it on turn three, but you skip on the creature board presence. And yes, your next creature will have haste, but you skip that free drop and, um, and, and, and you're basically on the back foot. So you need to start thinking about blocking because you're on the back foot, while this card tells you, no, you should be starting attacking because you're getting, giving haste to your creatures. Um, it probably would be really good if it gave haste and vigilance because then you could race and uh, stop them. But uh, as it is constructed like this, it was just not enough. And I think that this is going to be an eternal problem with those three mana enchantments that give your creature haste that you can't play them late because you don't have creatures to play. So the benefit of getting giving them haste is not so great. You can't play them early because you are missing out on the board presence. So they are in this like weird limbo when, um, you know, most of the time they just don't work very well. There will be games when they are taking it over and they will win the game, but um, not many of those games will be had. And that's why it only has 53.7% game and win rate. Now, the top card was Kappa Tech Wrecker, uh, the Green Ninja, 
Green Turtle, Ninja Turtle. That card was amazing, and if you didn't play the format, it might look slightly underwhelming, but it was a house. It basically generated those game states when damned if you do, damned if you don't in terms of blocking. Even if people knew that you have it in your hand, it was always a problematic thing to do. Like, should I chump block something? Uh, should I let it in? Uh, but then Kapatek Wrecker is going to wreck some funk of mine. With multiple ninjutsu things, you could have done that it dealt damage, just removed the death touch counter from it, destroyed an, uh, sorry, exile an artifact or enchantment, and then ninjutsu a second thing to return it back to your hand and threaten to activate it again. And it was just like, uh, how do I get out of this um, uh, loop of hatred? Um, so card was amazing. As you can see that even in this um, archetype that was relatively low win rate, it had a game and hand win rate of 61%, which is really strong for an uh, uncommon. So even in um, uh, even in this relatively poor archetype, it was uh, uh, much, much stronger than Twin Sniper was in the white red. Now, the important thing about it is that apart from um, apart from being um, a good ninjutsu creature that created those weird board states, it was also a modified creature in a deck that sort of cared about modified things. Um, um, and it cost two mana. There was very few uh, two mana modified creatures uh, in that format. And Kappa Tech Wrecker was one of the few where you could basically play it on turn two and curve out into like, uh, there was the three mana two, three that entered with a plus one, plus one counter. If you control the modified creature, so you could curve this one into a three, four and, um, uh, you know, three, four for three is a pretty decent stat. Um, so yeah, I mean, generally this card just, just, just played because it was good in every archetype that had green and also in some that just were splashing for it. Uh, my pick, um, Azusa's Many Journeys. I think that this card was slightly underappreciated. I think that it was one of those sagas that was good, but not picked highly. Uh, so you could get it quite late um, in the draft. And on turn two, this card was just a br a brilliant because you play it on turn two, you might play an additional land this turn. Um, then you gain three lives, so you recoup some of that lost tempo by not playing a two drop. And on turn three, if you had the uh, fourth land to play, uh, you could you could ramp into four basically uh, without a problem. And at the end, it switched, it, 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 it turned into a three three, which is a reasonable stat line. So you lost some tempo by playing it on turn two, um, lost some board presence. But then you could uh, play more expensive things, so you could keep up with the race. And also at some stage, when it turns into a creature and you play another creature, that's sort of like double spelling for the purposes of the game. So it was quite useful. And, you know, 56.2% um, uh, is decent for that archetype because that archetype didn't have a high win. Uh, in terms of commons, the top card was uh, Kami's Flare. That's um, a deal three, and when you control a uh, modified creature, it also deals two damage to opponent, the, the, the controller of, of that creature or planeswalker. It only can deal the three damage to creature or planeswalker, by the way. Uh, good removal. I mean, you just want to play as many of those as you could uh, if you played your red decks. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd recommend it. Uh, top Saga was Tales of Master Sashiro. And that's 53.7%. It's not that strong, even though it was on paper doing exactly what the deck wanted to do. So it um, gave plus one, plus one and vigilance until end of turn, uh, to, plus one, plus one counter and vigilance until end of turn to a creature, second chapter the same. And then it uh, basically flipped into a five, five haste vigilance. Uh, so quite a big creature, but still not a great win rate uh, for that deck. The card I selected for it was 
also something that we've seen many versions of that card, and I think that Watsi really played around with the um, um, with the design of this type of enchantment that turns the big dumb creature. And I think that they nailed it in Harmonious Emergence. It's a four mana enchant land, and the land becomes a four five spirit creature with vigilance and haste, and it's still a land. And if the land would be destroyed, instead sacrifice Harmonious Emergence and that land gains indestructible until end of turn. So you basically, if they kill it, you don't lose your land. And that card was good in all the archetypes. Um, it was decent in this one, uh, but also it was underdrafted. So it means you get access to them uh, quite a lot. But the five, four or five Vigilance is a really good stat line. Um, it was against decks that had small creatures. It was very quickly a threat that they had to deal with. Um, and you could get it late, so that's a great combination. Also, because it has Vigilance, you can attack with it and then later use the mana if you want to play something more expensive. It didn't force you to choose between casting a spell and um, um, and attacking, like the red version of that, the 3-3 three, three, um, hand. So uh, because of that Vigilance, Harmonious Emergence was much better. Because in the worst case scenario, it lost Vigilance for a turn, but you could cast a spell. In the best case scenario, you could attack with it and keep up like a one mana trick, for example, um, uh, that people very often didn't see because the only land you had untapped was that creature land. Right. Um, Blue-red and commons. So blue-red was caring about artifacts. Now, when you think about Kamigawa, Kamigawa had two mega synergies um, uh, inserted into the format. And there were two sides of the spectrum. Um, so uh, if you look at the colors, red and blue were artifact colors. and um, white and green were um, enchantment colors, and there were artifact creatures and enchantment creatures uh, everywhere. And black was a sort of uh, color that tried to have a mixture of both, and the me mechanistically they also had, if you control both an enchantment and an artifact, uh, do something, something. Um, now, the enthusiastic mechanot was the signpost uncommon, and in one of my favorite stat lines uh, in all magic, it's a two mana, two, two flyer. I love two mana, two, two flyers. I don't know why, but I just love them. Um, now, it also makes your artifact spells cost one less to cast. With quite some few playable one mana artifacts, this was a pretty nifty ability. So um, uh, yeah, uh, it worked fine. And it has a uh, very good uh, win rate of 60%. So uh, clearly, maybe, you know, uh, the synergy didn't work amazingly in this deck, but definitely Enthusiastic Mechanaut, just on sheer uh, rate, was a powerful creature. Um, uh, the top card was, again, Twin Shot Sniper. You can imagine that um, in an archetype that uh, cares about artifacts, having an artifact creature that can be a removal was amazing. And uh, you can also imagine, like, if you played a super aggressive version, playing like a one-drop flyer, a two-drop enthusiastic mechanaut, and turn three twin-shot sniper is a great um, is a great way of uh, winning a game. Uh, my pick just below the top card was Patchwork Automaton. Uh, this is one of the most uh, powerful cards in the format, and uh, I think that Jordan probably had uh, like dozens of trophies using Patchwork Automaton in different configurations. It's a two-mana artifact. Uh, whenever you cast an artifact spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on it, and it has ward two. And that ward two is so important because if you are on the play, you play the automaton. Uh, next turn, you play an uh, artifact or two. It becomes a three-three, and that was not an uncommon situation to do so. 
Um, then on turn four, you play another one, you get a 4-4, and uh, it still has uh, a word two. Very few things would be able to kill it uh, um, if you if, if you manage to make a curve out like that. And many games I've won by basically chaining a couple of Patwork Automatons and then seeing my opponent sitting there with their four mana removal that they can cast on turn six, seven. Um, and it was going modestly late. I mean, it was still a competitively taken uncommon, but I did notice that sometimes you end up in um, in pods where that card wheels, because if no one is interested in super heavy going on artifact synergies, you will wheel them and that um, uh, and that card uh, should not wheel. It's just too powerful for that. I actually, first draft I played of the, um, of the flashback uh, drafts, I had three of them and that deck trophied very, very, very easily. Um, with some curves that were just like insane, you know, like a turn two automaton, turn three automaton, and one drop uh, artifact, then turn four windshield sniper, and uh, everything. You just like you just like kill people out of nowhere. Just all of a sudden they become five five, and they cannot deal with them. It's uh, it's amazing. Now, in terms of uh, blue red commons, uh, the best card in total in general in in in, in of all the commons was uh, Moon Circuit Hacker, a two mana two one, but uh, it also has Ninjutsu one. Uh, and whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you may draw a card. If if you do discard a card, unless it entered the battlefield this turn, so basically ninjutsu it in, and then um, it connects, and it, uh, you draw a card. And next time, if you manage to connect with it, you you loot, uh, which is also a great ability. There are several cards in blue um, and several artifacts that you actively want to uh, bring back to your hand, like a Circuit Mender, the 2-3 that um, gains two life when it enters the battlefield and draws a card when it leaves the battlefield. Uh, if you manage to return it with the Moon Circuit Hacker, you get to draw a card from the Hacker, draw a card from the uh, Circuit Mender, replace Circuit Mender, and then if the Circuit Mender dies, you still draw a card. So it may, it, it, it costs some mana, but it generates this uh, very, very valuable uh, loopy loops. Um, Top saga for the uh, archetype was uh, the Modern Age, uh, a very good saga that uh, allowed you to fix your draws. Maybe less useful in this particular archetype because here you wanted to be maybe more aggressive with your uh, artifact synergies. Uh, but still decent, 66% win rate is higher than the average for the archetype. It has the first two chapters of looting and then it turns into a 2-3 flyer. Uh, so good evasive threat, but especially for decks that want to go big with mana, that looting was making sure that you will hit your land drops and uh, it was better in decks like that. Still solid in the blue-red. And my pick is the Ion Apprentice. This is also a card that we've seen in many uh, uh, other formats. I think it was Sparring Golem in, um, in Dominaria was very similar. It basically enters with a plus one, plus one counter. Um, and uh, well, when it dies, if it had counters on it, put those counters on target creature you control. A uh, very nice card to play on turn two if you had Kumona faces Kakazan because it enters with two counters then and if it trades it gives plus two plus two to something. So a um, uh, very good value engine. It was picked late and it had 56.8% win rate. So, um, you know, um, pretty solid for that particular archetype that didn't have amazing win rate in general. Um, so I would say that if you're doubting because you didn't play during Kamigawa times, if you're doubting um, whether um, whether it's a good card, it shouldn't be because it is a good card um, and uh, you should be able to play it in the aggressive versions of the decks, which focus around red, honestly. Now we have the blue-white and the uncommons. Um, signpost is Prodigy's prototype. 
it's a, a vehicle uh, that gives you an ability of whenever one or more vehicles you control attacks, create a one-one pilot, and the pilot uh, can crew with um, as if it was three power creature basically. And it has crew two, which is which is okay. Uh, this sort of points you in the direction that white blue should be the vehicle deck, but it wasn't. It just Prodigy Prototype was a good vehicle on its own, and probably that's the only one that you want to have in your deck. I know that some people played versions that had multiple free two flying um, uh, vehicles, and those versions were pretty good themselves. So you might do something like that, because you, uh, if you manage to make several of those pilots, you don't have to be worrying too much about um, um, not having creatures to crew your um, artifacts and vehicles. But you know, it's 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 just a one solid card. You shouldn't go like all ham on those uh, vehicle synergies because they were not supported sufficiently. It's just Prodigy Prototype was a good card on the Um Top card in the whole in the uh, archetype was Banishing Slash, the white white uh, destroy up to one target artifact, enchantment, or tapped creature. Then, if you control an artifact and an enchantment, create a two two white samurai creature token with vigilance. If you manage to get it for uh, the full value, so if you had artifact and enchantment on board, um, it's amazing because you just make a 2-2 Vigilance, which in some formats has been a standalone 2-mana creature, but it also destroys um, either an artifact or uh, enchantment or a tapped creature, so really good ability uh, to use. And it had very good 63.3% um, win rate. Uh, it is much better if you manage to get the uh, Samurai out of it, but in crisis situation, you can fire it up. Um, to give you the impression of playing with um, with those um, cards that require both artifact and enchantment, I did some stats on some of those cards, and you probably want to have at least five, six of the cards of the type that you support less. So, I mean, if you have 12 artifacts, you might want to have five enchantments uh, to play the card's second ability reliably. And if you have 12 enchantments, you want to have five artifacts and so on. Now, keep also in mind that not all artifacts and not all enchantments are made equal. Um, it was, of course, much easier to keep a non-creature artifact or enchantment into play, um, especially things that already accrued most of its value. No one would play a, a spell that would destroy them, so that's a way of, of keeping them on board. But most of the artifact and enchantments were indeed creatures, so uh, sometimes you could have played an enchantment creature when you need it, but then it gets killed and you lose your synergy uh, triggers. So that's an um, well, it's an unfortunate situation. Uh, in terms of my pick, I picked Born to Drive, uh, three mana, enchant artifact or creature. As long as enchanted permanent is a creature, it gets plus one, plus one for each creature and or vehicle you control. And I played that mode several times. Uh, you know, giving plus five, plus five to something uh, is no mean feat. Um, but it had a second mode with channel, uh, when you can just play three mana, discard it to make uh, two one one colorless pilot creature tokens with they can crew as three ones. And that second mode was equally good. It's basically when you think it's just like slightly more expensive uh, raise alert, uh, and the creatures have a slight upside compared to this uh, vanilla one ones from uh, uh, raise, raise the alert. Um, card was playing well, it was going late, and I think a one-off, it was not a bad thing to have, especially when you have a couple of those uh, vehicles lying around, or if you had like evasive threads that you can play it on and, and, and remove large chunks of life uh, by making your creature you know, like a six something. In terms of the commons, again, Imperial Oath is the top card, 62.7% is really high for um, 
for a humble common, especially that even though you know like the most busted rares did not have uh, uh, amazingly higher win rate, they were like at 68 or something, the top rares in this format. Um, so uh, amazing uh, performance for Imperial Oath. Um, again, the white blue wanted to be this kind of more grindy version of the deck. They didn't want it did, didn't want to be overly aggressive. It wanted to accrue some value and then play some oaths and stabilize and take over the game. And that was a very good strategy in the first run. I don't know how uh, val valuable, uh, how valid it's going to be now uh, when uh, when um, when it's picked a bit highly. Analysis paralysis says, remember the spoiler season, oath is unplayable. Well, I do remember uh, the spoiler season, but mainly because I was in the skeleton um, stream with uh, Jason ILTG and they were loving it from day minus five or minus 10, whenever we did the stream. So I very quickly got uh, swayed by the uh, very eloquent argument uh, for the card that uh, Jason ALTG made. So I was on the oath extremely, extremely early and um, not as early as Jason though. And I think NCAA was another player that was instantly like, wow, this card is going to be busted. And both of them were very, very right about it. And I think that, um, I think that if I'm not mistaken, Oath is my top uh, drafted common. I barely played white decks, but I very often played like black, green, and I had four Imperial Oaths in it randomly, uh, because why wouldn't you? And that was great. But I do remember some people were lower on it, and they stood corrected very quickly. Um, okay, uh, Modern Age was the top Saga with really good uh, win rate of 60.3. So um, uh, Sagas were good in this uh, type of deck because it is the kind of a deck that accrues uh, incremental value and Modern Age allowed you to smooth those draws. You know, you, you, you could play maybe more situational cards that sometimes are great, sometimes are terrible and discard them to Modern Age. Uh, the 2-3 uh, flyer in the end was pretty good because it was pinging away very slowly, but, uh, 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 but you know, it, it, it got there. Um, and getting to your six lands is also uh, important, and especially in best of one, um, in best of one, you have slightly smaller chances of getting to your six lands on turn six. Cards like Modern Age completely change it, so you can get uh, the absolute value. I think there was also a little small combo that I uh, personally liked playing, and it was the containment construct, the two-one artifact that when you discard a card, uh, you can actually play it until end of turn. And I had situations when I played the Containment Construct on turn two, Modern Age on turn three, discard a land, play a land, next turn, draw an extra card, discard a land, play a land, and then so much value from Modern Age. If you manage to ninjutsu it, replay it, and um, do more looting, you just draw so many cards out of it that it's uh, amazing. The only problem, of course, Containment Construct being a 2-1 uh, was uh, pretty fragile. But you don't mind if uh, Modern Age is good anyway and the people have to waste their uh, good removal on a 2-1. That was also like a small win. So you usually manage to accrue something out of it. And uh, my pick for the card that was interesting is Suit Up. Uh, it was really, really, really late in that format because people are used to this instant that turns your creature into a bigger creature. Uh, well, they, they, just, um, um, they just didn't believe in them. And in this particular format, the change was that it has draw a card attached to it. And it turns out that drawing cards is good and magic. And we will see it over and over again. Adding draw a card on anything makes it better. Um, because you, well, you play it and it replaces yourself. And the five, four, five was a really good stat line. Sometimes you could also um, trap people by not having a way to crew your vehicle, but, um, but uh, uh, making suit up convert 
vehicle to a uh, to a creature on instant speed was uh, was the thing that uh, was a good trap and also it generated those impossible conundrums but i'm going to talk about them uh, when we come to the archetype when that's been the most atrocious okay pum, pum, pum. oh i clicked away from the thing um next archetype is the white black um and white black's uh, signpost was naomi pillar of order um it's a five mana four four whenever it enters the battlefield or attacks if you control an artifact and an enchantment create a two two white samurai creature token with vigilance again medium numbers but slightly above average i think that you need to tune your deck slightly towards it because you want it to be entering the battlefield as this 4-4 with a 2-2. The problem with Naomi was that Imperial Oath was doing similar things but better. And uh, I usually played Naomi as this sort of like, okay, I didn't get four oaths. I'm just going to play three oaths and Naomi and it uh, should be fine. Again, as with the other card that I mentioned, um, it's good to have you know at least six of the lower count of the type that you're needing. So either artifact or enchantment should be at six and the other one higher or equal. But with six, you, you get probably the best chance and you maximize the win rate of many of those cards with six of the lower count of the type. Um, top card, and you're going to probably see it uh, on again and again as well, is uh, Life of Toshiro Umezawa. Um, it basically first two chapters for the boomers among the, uh, us were the abilities of the Umezawa Jite. Uh, so you either give a plus two, plus two to a creature, minus one, minus one to a creature, or you gain two life. So you always get some value from those chapters. Very often um, you manage to snatch one creature and then maybe gain two life or maybe enable an attack or something like that. Um, but it's been also, it happened to me that I just basically killed two creatures with that one card and then I still ended with a two, three that can give me mana that ramps me towards my Imperial Oath. So a great, great card altogether and one of the golden top five uncommons of the set. Um, they're not golden really, but top five uncommons of the set, which I uh, create a special category for those because they are head and shoulders above anything else. Uh, my pick was Dockside Chef. It's a one mana one two. It has an ability to sacrifice something and draw a card. And um, it is an enchantment itself. So it plays with those synergies um, of Naomi and other cards that require having both uh, types of uh, artifact and enchantment. A solid 59% win rate, and the card was going slightly later than most uncommons, so you could get it. Top common, <laughs> guess what? Imperial Oath. Um, again, not much to say. Top Saga, and not far from um, um, uh, Imperial Oath, is complete opposite side of the spectrum. Okiba Reckoner Rate, a one mana um, saga that uh, drains for one in the first two chapters, and in the third chapter switches into a 2-2 menace creature um, that also gives menace to your vehicles. And yeah, that card is great because it's aggressive, but at the same time stabilizes you. Um, you can play it on turn one when you don't have that much to do. Um, so pure upside. And um, you know, I've seen decks with six of them and they were smashing because menace is annoying, draining for a lot is annoying. Mm, I lost many games when I had opponent on lethal, if not for those four um, chapters by Okiba Reckoner raids that uh, they played at some stage. Again, menacing creature really working well with um, uh, with the ninjutsu, um, which was maybe less of a theme in the white black, but it was a theme in the format in general. My pick, a card that was definitely picked too low, um, and the card that all through the format grew in my estimates, uh, Shrine Steward. It's just a five three, a five mana three two. 
But when it enters the battlefield, um, you may search your library for an aura or shrine card, reveal it, put it in your hand, and shuffle. A um, couple of the shrines in this format were good on their own, so it was nice that you could get them into your hand with Shrine Steward. But especially in the white-black, the black removal um, of the format was an enchantment that you enchant a target creature, it gets uh, plus one, plus one, I want to say. And um, and as it enters the battlefield, it kills something. So you could actually search up the four mana uh, universal removal spell. Uh, obviously, if you did that, you had to keep in mind that opponent knows that you have it in your hand and um, don't play your uh, removal enchant uh, removal aura into a removal of your opponents uh, to lose uh, well, to do naturally two for one yourself. Um, blue green commons. And it was a very like grindy, loopy deck, um, and its signpost in common was uh, Skullsus Sky Turtle, a seven mana flying War Two Turtle that had two channel abilities. One was you could discard it for two and a green and return target card from your graveyard to your hand. The other was discard it uh, uh, for one and blue and return target creature to its owner's hand. Now this card enabled many loops because you could basically discard it to uh, get back. For example, there was a um, there was an instant spell that uh, you could return enchantment or creature, was it, from your graveyard to your hand. Um, and uh, basically then you could bring back the Colossal Sky Turtle and something, then you discard Colossal Sky, Sky Turtle to return your um, spell that could uh, uh, return things from graveyard. You can cast it again, return the sky turtle and something, and uh, you generated this like an easy loop. So this deck wanted to live to that uh, stage where you could do that kind of stuff, and uh, it frequently did because that uh, archetype was decent. It was not great, but it was definitely decent. Uh, top card was a Kappa Tech Wrecker. We already talked about it. Uh, it's still good. Um, again, one of the top five uncommons, which are a category of their own. My pick was Roadside Reliquiary. This card had a really high win rate in um, uh, in blue-green and in many other uh, color combinations, which makes me think that in Kamigawa, there was plenty of slow decks and uh, actually card draw in some extent, especially when it didn't cost you that much in deck building, was useful. And as you can see, Roadside Reliquary um, has a 60.2 win rate, so higher than the uh, Coastal Sky Turtle. It was picked relatively late because it's like um, the ALSA of it was roughly five and something. Uh, and you might think that this is a card for <coughs> this is a card for um, maybe white black deck when you have those uh, artifact and enchantment synergies. But <coughs> it was also good in uh, blue green and actually. In so many archetypes, I've seen Roadside Reliquary popping up as this high win rate card. So don't sleep on it. I think that the card is better than um, uh, than, than my than, at least than my intuition would um, uh, would hint me to. Um, so if you think in the same way as I do, you might miss that Roadside Reliquary is good. And in terms of commons. Uh, I picked Tamiya Safekeeping as the top common. I think that the card was, well, I mean, I didn't pick, people picked because that was the top win rate uh, common in blue-green. Um, it's deceitfully good for something costing one mana, but it basically gets some life gain, it gives hexproof, so it protects from removal, it gives indestructible, so it protects from damage. Um, and it worked fine. I think that playing 1-2 is no shame, uh, especially if you have creatures worth uh, protecting. Top Saga is a modern age again. 
And my pick uh, at 58.7% is Bamboo Grove Archer. Um, it's a 2 mana 3-3 three, three with Defender in reach. And also you could channel it later in the game, but for 5 mana to kill creature with flying. So a uh, useful card early, useful card late. Early it would stop your opponent to drop your life total too low enough that you would feel threatened. And this deck, what it really wanted to do is buying time. And I think Bamboo Grove Archer was one of the better ways of doing so. Um, white green, that's the other end of the spectrum as is it. Uh, this is the uh, enchantment-based uh, color combination. As you can see, like Jukai Naturalist is the polar opposite of the uh, of the gargoyle or whatever it was. What was that? Enthusiastic mechanaut. Uh, oh yeah, that's a gobo, flying gobo. Um, it's also an enchantment creature. It costs uh, green and white. It has lifelink instead of flying. And enchantment spells you cast cost one less to cast. Um, so a really good uh, thing. It could give you discount on so many cards. Um, and the lifelink was relevant. Uh, if you managed to boost it somehow, it became a huge threat. So all around a good card and the win rate uh, reflects that with 60.8. The best uncommon, a third one of the, you know, the top five uncommons in the, in the set, Blossom Prancer. Uh, it's basically uh, five mana reach, draw a card. That's basically what it says. Um, it's a great card. Um, uh, also gives you a large selection of what you draw, and uh, what you draw is going to be a uh, enchantment. So you need to have like a critical mass of enchantments in your deck not to miss. But yeah, if you don't draw a card, you at least gain four life. So uh, it's worst case scenario is five mana four four reach uh, gain four life, which is great still. And my pick again is the Azusa's Many Journeys, even better win rate in uh, this archetype, but partially because this archetype had a generally higher win rate. Um, again, went late, was good, uh, and especially in, in, in things that you did here. I think that um, this deck tempted you to become more aggro, but I think that the, the way to play it was um, was having that aggro potential, but more mid-rangey with controlling and accruing value. Um, the commons, the top common is uh, strangely enough not Imperial Oath. Imperial Oath was 0.2 percentage point lower at uh, place number two, but it's the Spirited Companion, the two mana uh, dog. When it enters the battlefield, draw a card. Just you know, just solid. It gives you some enchantment synergies. It draws your card. It's a dog. What's not to like? Uh, top saga in this archetype was the Tales of Master Sashiro we talked about, but here it has a better win rate than it did in the Gruel decks. So. Um, uh, worth keeping an eye on that one because it was actively good here, I think. Um, and my pick was Fate to Anti into Antiquity. It's a reprint. Um, it basically says Exile Target Artifact or Enchantment. And it had a 57% win rate, roughly. I think that this card was very playable. Uh, you could have um, um, you could have easily um, play more than one of those and uh, not be punished because there were just so many artifacts and um, enchantments in the format. Um, Green-White had a good early season, right? I don't remember exactly. I would have to check it. But uh, if you say so, probably there is something to it. Right. We're getting into the heavy hitters. So uh, um, to, 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 let's look at it. Um, well, we basically entered the top three territory. And these top three decks are slightly above the rest. I mean, Selesnya is catching up with them, but um, but still a bit a bit behind. Um, oh, spoilers there everywhere. Uh, Black Green was probably the most dominant deck early in the format because people were weaning off of it because the archetype was not really telling you what it wanted to do. Um, but it had to have a signpost uncommon. It's a, a, a three mana two one with Manus, which is 
way below rate, but it has an ability, if it enters the battlefield, return target permanent card from a graveyard to your hand. So it technically draws your card later in the game. And that um, changes it from uh, you know, just a random 2-1 menace into a 2-1 menace that draws me a spell, which is great. Um, okay, uh, top card again, Kappa Tech Wrecker. Um, nothing to be said about this card, it's just very good. Uh, my pick was um, Spinning Wheel Kick. Kick. This card was not like super good, but it went late. And this is the sort of a card that people might um, say, man, that's probably bad. It's just like so much mana to spend and um, and uh, you can be blown out of uh, with this card so, so easily. Um, but it wasn't, it was decent um, and it worked. You need to maybe make sure that you are uh, capable of using it without being blown out of the water by someone with a removal at instant speed. But you know, six mana kill two creatures was good. And later in the game, you know, 12 mana kill five creatures that was just backbreaking. So this card was on its own capable of uh, ending games. And the absolute fail was, um, you know, I spent four mana kill creature, um, which is all right, nothing to write home about, but I mean, that's a fail case and um, the upside was there. So don't think that this card is unplayable because it saw plenty of play and maybe you know it was not like the top uncommon but it was decent uncommon at least uh, in terms of commons uh number one card is twisted embrace that's the four mana aura that i told you in uh, when we talked about the, uh, the 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 shepherd guy um and when it enters the battlefield um destroy target creature or planeswalker and opponent controls and it gives plus one plus one to the enchanted permanent um, yeah, and it can enchant artifact or creature control. Why artifact? Because you could play it on a vehicle before it was turned the creature if you really wanted to, or, or actually for that instance on any other um, uh, artifact. It's just like if you played it on a vehicle, the vehicle would also get the plus one plus one bonus. But in situations that were fishy, but I need to kill something, I have not been beneath um, trying to play it on an artifact just because there's not so many re uh, instant speed replies to um, uh, to playing an aura on your non-creature artifact. And if you really wanted to kill something, that's what I did. And it did happen a couple of times. Uh, Top Saga, Okibo Recon Raid, just below the Twisted Embrace. Still a very good card. Uh, my pick is again Harmonious Emergence, even better in this deck than it was in the, um, in the previous one that we looked at. Um, again, card was, I think, hit perfect spot of moderately powerful um, four drop in limited or five drop depends how you count them. Um, okay, black red uncommons. Uh, Oni called Anvil is the signpost, and it has a really high uh, win rate. Game had win rate of sixty one point eight, meaning that the team was well supported. Like red, black tried to be this kind of more grindy version of uh, artifact deck, but very often you could just splash Oni called Anvil in almost mono uh, red deck as the sort of like way of giving you reach, and by reach I mean ability to kill your opponent rather than being blocking um, blocking flyers. Uh, solid card, it, uh, you sacrifice something during your turn, uh, an artifact, uh, you create a 1-1 one -one artifact creature, and the next turn you can sacrifice that artifact creature to get another one, and uh, you sort of start looping those things, and uh, draining for one as you did it, so a um, pretty strong card. Uh, Life of Toshiro Mizawa, um, we talked about it, so great, also in this uh, format. The card that I selected uh, at 59.8% win rate is Sokenzan Smelter. 
At the beginning of combat of your turn, you may pay one and sacrifice an artifact if you do create a 3-1 red construct artifact creature token with haste. Three ones are not a joke. Uh, lots of the times, if your opponents have small creatures on board, you could just basically sacrifice some redundant artifact every turn and uh, and just bolt them into face unless they block, in which case you probably have a good deal out of it. It like, also works very well with Onicult Anvil if you have that. You can sacrifice your 1-1 one, one, uh, construct um, uh, and then you get the 1-1 one, one because it triggers the Onicult Anvil on whichever sacrifice it happens. Uh, and you get a 3-1, you attack with a 3-1, next turn you sacrifice another construct, make another 3-1 attack phase, and if they don't have a response to it with 4 toughness, they will very quickly be overwhelmed by those 3-1's hasty um, uh, construct artifact creature tokens. Um, in terms of commons, I think that a very important, um, uh, very important uh, top card was Experimental Synthesizer. This card also excellent, and also you will find pods when you can basically pick unlimited amount of that card. It's a one red artifact when it enters the battlefield, you exile the top card of your library, and you can play it until end of turn. So very often you can uh, you can play it and hope to snatch a land on turn say three. And if you hit a two drop, you can still play it. Um, so uh, it's all good. And also you can sacrifice it um, to create a two-two white samurai creature. Um, activate only as a sorcery. When you sacrifice it, you again exile the top card of your library, and again, you can play it until end of turn. Um, importantly, it doesn't matter if you sacrifice it to its own ability to make the Vigilance uh, Samurai. It also uh, works with um, anything. You can sacrifice it to Voltage Surge, the one mana removal that deals two or four if you sacrificed an artifact, and you can uh, basically then still get to play the top card of your library if you did so. Um, top Saga, Okiborakon Raid, uh, we talked about it enough. I might pick, it's really, really close to the top cards in the, um, in the color combination. It's Chlorine Torment, a one mana enchantment aura, it enchants artifact or creature, and it can't block, it gets minus one, minus one, and it also pings your opponent for one each turn. So you can play it like on a 2-2, two -two, it becomes a 1-1, one -one. They can't block with it. Well, they can attack because I don't care. Um, um, because I'm racing them with my Chlorine Torment already uh, sufficiently. So, uh, yeah. Um, there's that. Um, hey, Bali, thanks for the sub. Okay, last deck is the blue-black uh, blue black, blue black uh, ninja. Uh, Master Splinter is the signpost uncommon. Let's be honest, that's what it is. It's a rat ninja uh, for blue-black. It also has a ninjutsu for blue-black. And uh, first of all, ninjutsu abilities you activate cost one less to activate. And second of all, um, um, other ninjas and rogues um, that you have get plus one plus one. So um, a, a solid card that was enabling the whole ninjutsu shenanigans when basically if you were not blocked with an attack, you can return that attacking creature to your hand and put a ninja into the battlefield and usually those ninja were quite um, competitively priced uh, in terms of the mana cost of, of doing so. So uh, uh, even decreasing the cost of ninjutsu was a big, big selling point for the blue-black. Um, it has a solid, you know, 61.2% win rate, but this archetype had also a solid uh, win rate of 58 and a half. So uh, it still was above the average uh, win rate. Top card, Life of Toshiro Mizawa, I've seen it before, still good. Uh, my pick was high-speed hoverbike. It's a two-month artifact 
vehicle with flash flying and when it enters the battlefield tap one or more target creatures so you basically before they declare their attackers you play this tap the biggest thing next turn you can activate it attack with it ninjutsu it because it's a flyer which i think why this card was particularly good in blue black uh, and then you still have can reply uh, replay it and then tap something that would have been attacking you anyway uh, so you can make those kind of um, weird uh, loop when people get locked by your high-speed hover bike. Uh, as I said, solid 60.5.7% win rate, so uh, yeah, pretty good. And commons, um, we have uh, Virus Beetle as the top card. It's a two-mana artifact insect. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, each opponent discards a card, so basically your uh, Ravenous Rats slash uh, what was the one uh, in uh, last set's... Uh, uh, corrupt court official. Uh, there's plenty of reprints of the card that does it. This one was an artifact, which uh, changes for much better because it could be played in um, uh, uh, black red. But it's also like a good creature to threaten a, a casual attack and make your opponent second guessing if you have that suit up or not. Uh, Top Saga again, Okiba Reckoner rate. Uh, you see a trend, 62.8. So actually, Okiba Reckoner rate should be the top card uh, as well as the Top Saga, but. Uh, just to give you a broader overview of data, I um, I put it in the saga slot rather than the top card slot. And my pick was Suit Up again. Uh, suit Up was one of the best cards to be played in Ninjas because it puts opponents in such awkward choices. Um, I had to face that choice multiple times, and I don't think that uh, I managed to get uh, you know uh, more than uh, more than fifty five percent win rate out of those games. Okay. For the bigger picture, we are done with the archetypes, but you more or less know what they're doing and what they're not doing. The bigger picture, first of all, this was not a bomb-heavy format. There were good playable cards at high rarities. These are the top five um, uh, rares and mythics in the in the set. Uh, we have Fable of the Mirror Breaker, um, uh, Jugend Defense the Temple, Inventive Iteration, so three sagas. And then Farewell, which is this weird draft that you can really craft into something that is very beneficial for you and terrible for the opponent. Uh, because you can choose to exile only artifacts or only enchantments or all creatures and all graveyards and uh, yeah because you have so much choice it allows you to shape the game to your liking and that card was backbreaking when uh, when you didn't play around it and someone had it and wandering emperor which is like one of the best uh, planeswalkers that were released in the last five or so years so uh, it's also good limit because why not um I told you already there are five uncommons that are head and shoulder above everything else in terms of uncommons, and that's uh, Kappa Tech Wrecker, uh, Life of Toshiro Umezawa, uh, Blossom Prancer, all three of those, we talked about it. But on top of that, there's the Basidurich Skyward, a four-mana saga that uh, you, you search for two um, uh, forest cards uh, on the first chapter. Then there's something that you never do. You can put land on top of your library. And then third, um, third, uh, chapter is just turning into a massive creature that has reach and it has power and toughness equals to uh, uh, lands you control which 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 can be pretty substantial uh very hard to deal with uh also very powerful and the fifth of those uh great sagas or great uncommons is uh, behold the unspeakable a very defensive saga that the chapter one it gives minus two minus oh to all opponents creatures um uh, there is um Second chapter is you draw a bunch of cards. I mean, at least two, but uh, in, a, in, a, in a perfect world, even up to four. Um, and then it turns into a, um, a creature that 
if I remember correctly, has power toughness uh, of how many cards you have in your hand. Very solid. So these five are head and shoulders above all the other uncommons. So if you are planning to play um, Kamigawa, I would uh, look for those actively. They all also fit on the sort of similar uh, plan. They are all good at those grindy Selenia decks. Uh, uh, so uh, that's where you want to put them most likely. So bigger picture, um, I told you that Ninjitsu is a, a tricky mechanic uh, and they made it ultra tricky in this format because of suit up. So imagine that you're my opponent. I'm attacking you with a virus beetle. Do you block it? I might have suit up. And then your creature dies, I draw a card, uh, whatever, whatever, um, uh, all upside. So maybe you think, okay, I'm not going to let that, uh, uh, I'm going to let the virus beetle in. And boom, appears Moon Circuit Hacker, bouncing the Virus Beetle to uh, opponent's hand, replaying Virus Beetle for another discard. Shall we dance again? Uh, this triple conundrum was something that really made or break um, ninja decks in this format. Having threats that are not very threatening, but become must blocks, because what if you have suit up? Um, uh, what if you have ninjutsu? Uh, therefore, opening uh, opening um, possibilities of casting a very favorable suit up, and also there are those uh, ninjutsu creatures that you really need to block everything because if they start getting those very uh, you know nickel and diming uh, ninjutsu uh, effects, you very quickly are going to be ahead in the game. Um, okay, so I was talking about two color uh, combinations. Uh, Kamigawa is a strictly two-color format in terms uh, of you shouldn't be playing three. It's not giving you that uh, uh, that perfect uh, win rate. I think that splashing is fine, but do it responsibly. Um, I think the network terminal is a particularly useful uh, tool for splashing. But there is a monocolor deck that was reliably being capable of being drafted, and that's Mono Red. And uh, this deck is really based on those three uncommons, and you really want to have as many of them as possible before you start forcing your mono red. Uh, and then you can just put like one drop artifact creature, two drop artifact creatures, maybe some couple of top handy bombs and stuff like that. But as long as you have Kumanos, Patchwork Automatons, and Sokens and Smelters, you are going to be just fine because these cards can generate an atrocious um, amount of uh, value during the game. Um, and I think that it's really important to have at least a couple of those in your monoreg decks. If you don't get those, then I don't know what you were doing um, getting into monoreg. If you, I mean, you probably must have been forcing it because these were the cards that usually sway me to, to start going the monoreg way. Um, okay, that's part of the tips and tricks. Now, what's the difference between previous iterations and the current iteration? Um, so. First of all, flashback drafts are odd animals. I talked about it a bit during the um, uh, during the um, preamble. Oh, Hanagram, thank you very much for the raid. I sorry, I missed it because I don't have notifications when um, uh, when I'm uh, doing my streams. Uh, but uh, thank you very much for the for the raid. Um, so you got several categories of players that you maybe not don't have necessarily during the first round of the format. Um, so first of all, I told you there are people who want to try the format they never played. And these will be very naive uh, in the biological meaning of the word naive, like not knowing what's going on, basically. Um, and uh, yeah, they will be probably the category of players that the experienced ones will be preying upon a bit. 
second category that I think is important is people who want to do their thing. Like after an eight week format, very frequently you will have your pet deck and you want to relive it again. And you're just going to go into those drafts and force it or try to force it. And um, if you're lucky, you're going to get there. If you're not lucky, you're not going to get there and you're going to crash and burn. But um, very frequently, those people will just try to do that thing. And if that thing that you that they are trying is a popular thing, lots of people will try to do the same thing. I remember when I came back, there was a flashback draft of Ravnica Allegiance. I went into the um, I went into um, a draft trying to force this uh, Azorius no 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 Wincon uh, kind of archetype, and I couldn't for the love of it because everyone tried to do it. And so I just learned the hard way. Uh, I'll just do something else because, uh, um, uh, because because why not? Thank you very much for that um, gift sub, uh, Zach. Uh, that's a very nice thing to do from you. Um, so there is also people that did incredibly well in the format, and because of that, they want to come back because they have good memories of the format because they were winning all the time. And board grinders. So you will have this like patchwork of skill um, uh, during those drafts, and. Uh, because of that, they might be slightly um, slightly different numbers in terms of the flashback part than uh, when you had this format for the first time. Because you will have really heavily invested players mixed together with some people that never had uh, played. So what is the difference? And I made a couple of slides to, to showcase the differences between the, uh, the formats. So first of all, uh, these are the win rates of the first run. And these are the win rates of the flashback. Mind you, flashback obviously has a much, much, much smaller um, uh, sample size. As you can see, except for Gruel and Boros, there is a big increase in win rate for all the um, for all the archetypes. And I think that um, this increase in win rate is linked with the thing that I've been talking before. There is a bunch of players that never drafted it and are still you know, figuring out what's going on is Neo and they have to play against people who played 100 drafts in the format and know everything about it and know all the tricks, know how to play around uh, Life of Toshiro Umezawa and they don't fall uh, into that trap. And people that never played it will, you know, just start churning out those uh, one toughness creatures early and um, uh, straight into the Life of Toshiro Umezawa of uh, the opponent they maybe don't have their evaluation up to scratch. And I think that this difference is basically sort of like quantification of the number of those players who uh, are still quite new to the format. And I think that um, this is why we see the difference in, in terms of 17 lens users win rate. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lot. So I think I said that uh, if you played a lot of uh, Kamigawa, I think that it's probably quite beneficial in terms of gems to come back to it and play a couple of drafts if you uh, if you didn't. I couldn't explain for the love of it. Uh, so uh, DDAVP, DDAVP um, has a comment that clearly is it is too good and we missed it the first time. I don't know how to explain this uh, amazing numbers that is it is showing. So basically, uh, is it had 55% win rate in the first run and now it has 62.6% win rate. So. Uh, we have seven percentage point difference between the first run and the flashback, and I, I I didn't have a very good explanation why 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 it would be so. I think that maybe it's just like is it with which it, in in a version of quite heavily red with some blue spells splashed in maybe you know like a ten six mana split and those decks were good because it's like a mono red that didn't quite get there uh, but it's still pretty powerful. 
Um, all right. Um, so basically, eight of the 10 archetypes have a huge increase in win rate, um, two not. And I think that these two you should avoid because that means that there's just like, it's hard to play them. And um, um, okay, so I have a question from Tresio. Um, I have returned to MTG recently after 25 years away. Nice. Uh, I've done a fair amount of drafting starting with Streets of New Capena. What's the wisest way to experiment drafting Neo without getting obliterated by those who know the format? Okay, um, like first of all, yeah, I would rewatch the seminar. Uh, second of all, I think that there is an article on MTGA Zone that is freely available from uh, J2S Josh that explained it. Um, third of all, I would, if I were you, go to 17 Lens and look at the recent trophy decks from uh, Kamigawa and just check what's going on in there and then try to figure out what people are doing uh, to be winning. Um, I think that like, Super quick heuristics is that sagas are good. Uh, just if you think that the saga is medium, it's probably better than you think um, and, and play it. Um, try to stay open in the draft because this is a format with a roughly um, balanced uh, win rates of each archetype. So uh, you will benefit more from finding the open lane than from uh, forcing uh, a particular lane. And um, yeah. I think that, that that's that's the easiest advice I can give, um, and you know, congratulations for, uh, for coming back after twenty five years. I I had a twelve year break, uh, uh, and yeah, uh, I don't know if I would have come back after twenty five years. Uh, that's uh, that's some uh, some determination to come back to the game. But I'm glad that you came back to the proper format, and by that I'm 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 I'm, I'm saying uh, limited. Ah, oh, third fourth uh, tip. Go to uh, 17 lands and just look at the win rates of the cards and, and um, try to make your own evaluation of the cards and see which cards surprise you. And then uh, maybe try to think why the cards that surprised you might have a high win rate, what might, what might cause them. You know, you can also ask in the community. There's plenty of discords uh, where you can ask this kind of, those kind of questions. Hi, Cotton, by the way. Um, all right. Uh, let's go. Ah, what did I click again? Okay. Uh, so in most formats, I introduced this sort of measure called archetype openness. And um, just in brief, to describe what it does to you. Um, it tells you how many good cards from each color, um, um, from each color combination, you will see per pod, and that's calculated based on the seventeen lens statistics of how many of those cards you should be seeing in draft on average. And good cards, I define as cards with a win rate of 56% and higher in game and hand win rate. Um, and, you know, first of all, the three most open colors are blue, black, white, blue, and blue, green. They have the most good cards. So there's probably, uh, you know, you can experiment with the builds of those colors and find something that is uh, pretty strong. Um, then you have the, the second tier, white, black, white, green, black, green. Uh, then you have like mono red and black red, and um, uh, then you have uh, blue red and white white red red green are the poorly poorest doing. Um, but what you can also see is that there is not a big difference between first run and flashback. So basically, more or less the same things are uh, open the same way um, in the first run and the flashback. There is a slight drop. Um, okay, oh, there shouldn't be this bloody. Oh, there we go. There shouldn't be the uh, uh, chat message. 
there is like a consistent slight difference uh, that there is fewer cards available in the flashback and that tells me that um um that tells me that um there are people that know better what's going on uh, in those flashback drafts so uh you won't see cards going super late as you did in the maybe first weeks of the format even though there are those naive players there's not enough of them to uh, actually allow you to draft at will uh, unless you you know end up in a pod with the majority of players that are playing like that um okay um well basically what you can see is that uh, most colors you will probably see enough good cards to draft a deck out of them which is uh, which is important i think at 40 you will you will have enough cards to be able to play um in terms of cards that perform much better in current iteration than in the first run of the format um i see a bunch of red tinted cards doing better now than they did before and i think that is because people now already uh, uh, people now know exactly how to build a mono red deck, especially the ones that know how to do it, um, and came back just to specifically draft mono red. Uh, they know exactly which parts to put in. So we have like bronze plate bore um, uh, being eleven percentage points higher win rate than in the first run. Uh, Sukenzan smelter ten percentage points higher win rate than in the first run. Um, Rabbit battery we have here. Simeon sling. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Oni called Anvil, which is very often splashed in the mono red or uh, played in the like slightly black tinted version of the red deck. Uh, apart from that, for a weird reason, Search Hacker Mac has a much higher win rate. I think that maybe this was also the card that was people tried to play it in the blue white uh, vehicles that were not even a deck, and now people learn how to play it and that they not, don't need to go all in on vehicles. You can play it as the only one, maybe one of the two. Um, so yeah, um, black and green Goshintai um, uh, also have an increased win rate by seven and um, eight percentage points. Um, that's something to look at. Uh, I don't know for what reason, but a bunch of a uh, bunch of dual lands have a slightly higher win rate. Don't ask me why. I don't have a good explanation. There are also some um, uh, dual lands that have a slightly lower win rate. I think it might be something to do with. Um, with uh, variants, but I'm, I, I can't pin it for that, uh, at least not yet. And inventive iteration, the uh, Blue Saga, that was already bomb in the first run, and I think it uh, got a slightly higher win rate uh, still. Uh, keep in mind that an average card increased by 3.8 percentage points uh, compared to the, uh, uh, to the original run, so you basically should deduct 3.8 from those numbers. So that bronze plate bores increase is taking into account that the win rates are slightly higher in the flashback version. It's still roughly 8 percentage point higher win rate uh, than it was before. So uh, pretty impressive. And the only call down will goes 3 percentage points higher uh, rather than 6.8 when you would normalize for that. Um, in terms of cards that actually do worse, um, again, these should have the 3.8 deducted from them. So especially Selfless Samurai and Tameshi Reality Architect um, uh, dropped in their win rate by quite a, quite a lot um, uh, compared to the start. Uh, we have Tranquil Cove that dropped, but maybe that's something to do with um, Blue-White uh, not being uh, that great. 
Acquisition Octopus that card was not good, uh, but it's still not good. Seismic Wave, uh, solid removal, but uh, maybe not as good because you play against lots of artifact decks and uh, against artifact decks, Seismic Wave doesn't work uh, so well. Uh, Naomi, um, the white black uh, signpost uncommon dropped a bit. The Fall of Lord Conda, uh, Kappa Tech Wrecker actually dropped by a little bit and Spirit Companion dropped by a little bit. But these cards had a very high win rate, so uh, it might be just like sort of reversion up to the mean. And again, I remind you, it's based on small numbers, so um, that can still change. But at least those are good indicators that some cards did change in their performance. And I think the biggest shift was that some mono-red cards are doing much better now, because probably people don't draft those decks that are not really supposed to be in. Um, to, 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 to. Okay, there's also changes in ALSA. And ALSA, for those of you that don't know, is the measure of how late does a card go in, in draft. Um, so if it, the lower the number, the earlier the card is being picked. So uh, say if ALSA dropped, it means that the card is picked much, much, much higher by the players. And here we have a clear winner, Imperial Oath. Uh, uh, it dropped by 1.6 picks, which means that you're going to see well, probably something like roughly 0.5 imperial, half an imperial or fewer in per draft. So instead of on average seeing like 1.6, you will see 1.1 imperial oath during draft, which means you can't count on them as much as you could in the in the early season of the. Uh, Neon Dynasty. So lots of people started knowing, look, look, Imperial Oath is the thing you should be doing. I'm going to pick them highly and uh, rightfully so. So you can't just uh, hope on getting all the oaths you want. You will have to fight for them uh, because uh, community knows. A second card, and that's another card that was really open in the original run, is Suit Up. Um, that also dropped by a whole pick. So like you will see 0.3 Suit Ups fewer in a pod. You still see like 1.8 of them uh, per draft, so that's fine. Uh, but we have a couple of uh, interesting cards. Modern Age is picked higher. Kumano Faces Kakazan is picked higher. Okiba Reckoner Raid is picked higher. Tamiyo Safekeeping picked higher. Virus Beetle Searchlight Companion, the two cards that are working great with Suit Up uh, uh, because uh, um, you can attack with them and uh, if they don't block, you can bounce them back to your hand. If they block with them, you can suit them up. Um, these are going higher. Spirit Companion, uh, Kami of Terrible Secrets, and Bump Grove Archer and Chlorine Torment. So key cards for their archetypes. Lots of those cards that um, have um, are picked higher now um, in the flashback version of the draft. Lots of those cards were either my top cards in colors or lots of them were the cards that I told them these are, would be my picks for an interesting card because they were underdrafted. And it seems that in the flashback um, drafts, they might be actually drafted on the correct rate. So maybe you can't count on them. Um, the cards that you have more access to, a bunch of those cards are just bad cards. Uh, we have Scrap Welder, Web Spinner Calf, not great card. Replication Specialist, not a great card at all. Dragon Spark Reactor, pretty bad card, actually. Um, there is a couple of the cards that maybe are interesting. Temper in, tempered in Solitude can be interesting in some decks, um, especially when you have that one evasive creature you can attack and, um, and then uh, basically uh, 
get free value of it. It's a it's a two mana enchantment that whenever you attack with one creature only, it doesn't even have to be a samurai or a warrior. You can exile the top card of your library and uh, you can play it until the end of turn. Uh, so that card is more available now. Um, Bronze Plate Boar, that's the biggest improver in terms of win rate, is also the card that you will see more uh, during the drafts because people think it's slightly less. Uh, Seismic Wave, uh, Uprising Renegade, uh, these are sort of interesting uh, cards to look at. Again, they are all in mono red. So, uh, okay, you don't see as many Kumanos faces Kakazans, but what you don't see in Kumanos, you will see in uh, Bronze Plate Boars and uh, Uprising Renegade, which is another card that can be sneaky good in the deck if you have the right uh, build for it. It's a 1-3 that gets plus 2 plus 0 for each modified creature that is not it uh, on the battlefield. So it can easily become like a 5-3, uh, 7-3 I had it. You know, when you have this Iron Hoof board that gives plus 3 plus 1 and Trample, if you attack with the 7-3, that can do a lot of damage in one smooth move. All right. Boom. We got there. And since we got to the end of the seminar, I would like to really thank um, the 17 Lands team because without their data, there wouldn't be much of uh, material to make data seminars on, really. Uh, so Viral Misnomer, Hululu, Grant Wu, and Alebalini ZTM, uh, thank you all guys. You did an amazing job to uh, create the website, run it, operate it, and uh, you know, fix all the issues that the uh, wizard is, wizards are chucking, uh, chucking at you. I would like to thank Fake Jake Brown, who um, helps me with releasing this in the uh, podcast version. So uh, thanks for his help uh, with every single episode that I released. There was plenty of his work uh, involved. And as we are on the podcast topic, I would like to thank Asescu and Mana Junkie, uh, who make the music that I introduced into the uh, intro of the podcast. Um, and with that, I probably won't see you next week because I'm on holiday, but uh, hopefully see you in two weeks when we maybe can start uh, either dealing with some kind of big topic or maybe having a sneaky first peeks on the uh, on the Dominaria United uh, cards uh, and speculate what they can mean for the format. But for now, see you later. <laughs> <laughs>